Thank you, Jerry. And thank you, Kendra, Kathy, and Arthur for leading us in worship this morning. Happy Mother's Day to everyone. Call your mother. There you go. Before we look at God's word, let's, let's always say it's good to talk to the author before we look at the book. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let's, uh, we ask you that you touch us this morning with your sustaining comfort, that you keep us from paranoia, that you keep us from overreactions that uh, deplete our love for you and for others. We ask that you fill us with insights necessary, necessary to deal with the difficult decisions and complicated relationships that we're involved in. And we ask that you take away the temptation, the temptation to, to look for our, our joy and happiness in other places, to buy our way into happiness. We ask you to, to fill us again with the joys that come from knowing you and the, uh, that gives us the security and the freedom that comes with being your children. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, who is the gift to our souls, the gift that we have been waiting for, the gift for our whole lives, since even before we even knew it. And Father, we ask that you take your inspired word, the word that is inspired by the Holy Spirit, to plant it into our hearts this morning in ways that we may not even really understand, so that we will be able to bless others with the words, with our words, with your word, with our friendships, your friendship, and even our smiles and joy with your smiles and joy. Father, we welcome the wisdom of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. There are so many mysteries about this that we don't understand, but we thank you that your wisdom has become personalized in the incarnation, that has become specific and is there when we, when we ask for help. We surrender ourselves to you. We want to listen to your voice. We surrender to you this morning our egos, our desires, our longings. We ask that your huge storehouse of wisdom be open to us today as we look into your word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We are continuing in the book of Hebrews this morning. Uh, chapter 11, a uh, famous chapter. Uh, beginning, we looked at Enoch and, and, and Abel last week. And that definition of faith that he mentioned at the very beginning of the uh, very beginning of the chapter, that faith is this assurance, it has a future aspect and it has a present aspect. This assurance of the hope we have, as well as the belief in the things that are unseen. And uh, I think in this chapter, as we go on to, to verse 7, this next section, he kind of he delves into that and goes any deeper than just the assurance of hope and the believing in things are not seen. But it, it carries over into this trust. Um, ever, ever since the earliest time of, of humankind, people have looked up to the skies and looked at the stars, and they've tried to analyze it and look at it, and they had all kinds of theories of where these things came from. They used to believe that the earth was, uh, was, was covered by a, some sort of a, a dome, some sort of cover, and the stars were these perforations in that dome, and whatever was on the other side, whether it was the light of some god or a god or the gods, would shine through these little perforations. And of course, that was, a big, that was a big leap to go on to think that each one of those little specks was actually a separate star. And now we even know that the galaxy, the Milky Way, is much, much larger than we ever, ever imagined. And uh, we, we study it scientifically. We send satellites. We send uh, telescopes into space. And um, I just saw that there was one, one vessel that actually broke the human speed record that was starting to orbit around the sun. 
Uh, I mean, it's amazing. But not only that, it's also romantic. We fall in love with the stars, uh, behind the stars. And uh, some people even paint them and uh, trying to capture their majesty in, the, in, uh, in paintings. Uh, but the Bible doesn't really try to make a, um, an attempt to try to explain the existence of God or try to prove the existence of God. It's just that it accepts it. It acknowledges that the creation, the stars in, in particular, the creation in general, testifies to the existence of God. And that it's, uh, it's more interested in us getting to know this, this creator God. And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews also uses creation a lot in the, in the text. And beginning in chapter 2, he talks about Psalm 8, which is a creation-type book, a creation-type psalm, and explains this uh, as this sort of a jumping-off point for contemplation. And so the, the purpose of Hebrews of using creation is to provoke us, to prompt us to contemplate and to worship. And when we get to chapter 11, he uses creation for another purpose, that we contemplate not only the existence of God and that he is the creator, that creation uh, needed a creator, that creation did not create itself, but we get to chapter 11 and he uses creation as this point to say, hey, this God is also trustworthy. That the God that created the heavens, the God that created the earth, the God that created the sands of the seashore is also a covenant-making God. That this God is a promise-keeper. That this God makes promises and he keeps them. And if he's capable of, of creating this, this immense universe that we see, that, that um, we see on a microscopic level or on a, on a universal level, this, this creator God is perfectly capable of keeping his promises. And that's kind of the point of chapter 11. And last week we were in the first six verses where he kind of defines faith and introduces us to the first two examples, Enoch and Abel, and these two guys uh, seem to be uh, kind of odd choices, but they, they picked these two guys uh, and for several reasons. And one of them, I think, is because one of them was killed by his brother and the other one didn't even take steps. As if to say, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the end, regardless of life on this earth, that faith triumphs. Tra faith will win. And then he takes us into this next section where we have three more examples. We have Noah, Abraham, and Sarah. And I think what he's doing here is taking us deeper into faith. He's saying that if we've got faith and we've got hope, and out of that faith and hope it comes deeper to this, this life of trust. And I really almost prefer that word trust to faith. And, and if you were to ask me, if, you, if I could sum up Christianity or sum up the Christian life in one word, I would say trust. That's trust. And you say, well, what about love? Jesus said love was the greatest commandment. Yeah, but I think the love comes out of that trust. It, all the things that we, we attribute to God and all the things that we attribute to humanity that makes us human, even though it's broken, like justice and freedom and power and love and, and truth, all of those things, I believe, comes out of a trust of this creator God. And he starts off with an example of, of Noah. And uh, it's... It's a, it's the whole question here in the chapter is, is God trustworthy? And he's beginning to show us that, yes, it is, he is trustworthy. And I think with these three people, he's telling us that trust is in spite of certain things. And with Noah, it's like, yes, 
the, the, uh, the life of trust means, sometimes means living without visible evidence. That we may not have the evidence that we need to believe, but trust is trusting that God is, is able to do that. And Noah is described as a heir, a righteous heir. Uh, verse 7 says, It was by faith that Noah, having been warned by God about events that were not yet seen, took seriously the warning and built an ark to save his household. By this he demonstrated to the world to be corrupt and became the heir of the righteousness that is in accordance with faith. He is called an heir of righteousness. And what, I'm thinking, what I think he's trying to say there, he is the kind of heir that is righteous. This is the kind of heir he is. And he takes action. He takes action in demonstrating his faith. And that's the thing. With trust, it's not just saying, I, I trust and I'm going to sit back and let God take care of it. Trust means we act appropriately. And he takes action demonstrating his faith. And so we get a glimpse of what it means to walk with God, with Noah. And when Genesis recorded this story, uh, in, in, in Genesis chapter 6, He's addressing the Israelites. The Israelites are supposed to look to Noah as an example of a man who trusts. Well, Hebrews picks it up. The writer of Hebrews picks it up and says, Noah, for you guys, the Christian people, you people who are following Christ, also you can look to Noah as a person who is a person of trust. If you see what he believes and what he does, this is why we're supposed to be in, in uh, he is our model. And if you go back to Genesis and look at the story, this, we get caught up in all in the physical stuff. We get caught up in the flood and the, and the ark and the destruction and all that. But really, if you go back and look at it carefully, the emphasis is on the cause. The emphasis is on the moral disparity. That God is saying that, that obviously, if we leave men and women to live reckless in reckless abandon, they will destroy each other and destroy creation. And so God steps in. And he says, Noah is this righteous heir, and by this he is, he is condemning the world. He is admonishing the world. He is rebuking the world. And that's why he is a, that is why he is a person of trust. And we also see that God, the story always ends with redemption and restoration. This is God's justice. God's justice is always ends with restoration and redemption. Yes, God's justice has a no to it but it also always has a yes to it. That is always the end game for God in justice, is restoration. If my bike is broken and I take my bike down to uh, you know, the bike shop, they will have to diagnose the problem first and figure out what's wrong and then do the positive and then do the restoration. Well, that's how God operates here. And Noah is the one who demonstrates that. And I think he picked Noah as this example because we can relate to him. Because he, too, is living in a time where God was about to intervene into human history in a dramatic way. We, too, live in a time where God has intervened and will intervene in human history. Noah lived in a time where he acts on the revelation of God. We, too, he's saying, we need to act on what God has revealed. Noah also admonishes the world by the way he lives. He rebukes the world by the way he lives. We too, we too can admonish the world by the way we live. Now, the church, when it is at its best, does that. When the church is at its best, 
we admonish the world by the way we live, by the love we have for one another. Now, we know very well that the church can distort it horribly, and we end up shooting ourselves in the foot. But at its best, we admonish the world by the way we live. My missional philosophy as, as for, for a missionary is basically this, that the best critique of the bad is the practice of the better. We don't have to be adversarial, but we do have to be better. We do have to live in love. And just the way we live, just the way Noah lived was an admonishment to the corrupt world. And that's, that's how we integrate into the culture. That's how we integrate into our world. So he talks with, 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 um, with about Noah, but then he moves on to the person we would assume he would talk about when he talks about the righteous live by faith. Uh, he picks up what he said earlier in Habakkuk uh, that the righteous will live by faith, and the, the writer of Hebrews picks that up, and then he applies it to Noah, but we would think Abraham, well, he does get to Abraham. But there's a lot of difference here. While, while Abraham... While Noah was warned, and, and he heard the warning, Abraham was called. Uh, Noah was, was told to stay and build an ark, and Abraham is called to leave. Noah was built the ark and preserved his house, literally is what it says. Well, Abraham is called to leave and go to a place and trust God to build his house. So there is a difference, but there's one thing in common. The thread that runs from Noah to Abraham and all the way to Sarah is the unknown. They don't know what the future holds. It's all unknown, and yet they trust. And so then we go to Abraham. If Noah was trust, means living without, without visible evidence, Abraham is trust that means sometimes living without clarity, without certainty. The place he is called is unclear. Uh, he is called to leave his hometown and go to another town that he will make him his hometown. And it's not that Abraham and Sarah just heard this strange voice one day and decided to believe it. We don't know how God communicated to them. But what I firmly believe is that what Abraham and Sarah heard was from the God that they already knew. They knew the creator God. And they knew his voice when he spoke. And when he spoke, they believed. And he had the faith to wait. I'm just not going to read all these, these verses again. I just want to put them up there in case you didn't bring a Bible with you to look. Because some of them are just going to put it on the screen after Jerry read. I'll read a couple of verses. But I just want to make sure we, we can see where this is coming from. That he set out not knowing where he was going. There was no clarity. There was no certainty. And it says that he lived as a foreigner in a foreign land, as a stranger in a foreign land. And that word is really packed with meaning, the word stranger. It, it literally just means something that belongs to someone else. It's described as a field that belongs to someone else. But when it's used as pe for people, it, it means a, usually means a, a hostile presence, an adversary. Somebody that's suspicious, that they don't know. And he's saying that Abraham moved to this place where he became a hostile presence. And think about it. He's coming from another place. He speaks a different language. 
He has different customs. He eats different foods. No wonder everybody was suspicious of him. He was considered a hostile presence. It's used as a foreign army sometimes, as a, as a, a violent army that comes to conquer. Jesus uses it as a person who the sheep run away from. They run away from this stranger because he's hostile. It's a hostile presence. And I think this, if we capture this idea, I think this explains why Abraham lived in fear himself. I mean, when people see you as an enemy, they're going to live in fear. And I can kind of understand why he decided to lie twice about his wife, about Sarah, because he himself was afraid. He was considered, he was considered hostile. He was considered an adversary, a stranger. And I also think this has a lot to do with, and I'm, I know I'm on a little rabbit trail here, but I, but I think the word is so important. I think it also has to do with why the Old Testament is so firm on telling Israel, welcome the stranger, welcome the stranger, welcome the stranger, because you were strangers. And he's not just talking about Egypt, he's going all the way back to Abraham. And I think if, he's, if I'm right here, and the author, author is, is talking to uh, a, a closed sect of Jews, the Essenes, then I'm sure this word kind of pokes the cow a little bit. That he was a stranger. And he was considered hostile. But this was his homeland. This was his land. The thing is, the ending was unclear. He wasn't sure where it was going to end. In fact, he never experienced the end. He doesn't know how it ends. He doesn't know what happens at the end because he died. And the only piece of property that he owned when he died was a tomb. He owned a grave, and that's all he owned when he died. And yet he believed in the promise. He owned the tomb to bury his wife. But Genesis tells us that he died in peace. How is that possible? Because he trusted the covenant God. Because he trusted that the creator God was going to fulfill the promise. He never saw the end, but he knew this creator God had, had bonded himself to his people and it would be fulfilled. This is what a man of faith looks like. Till the end, he bonded to the end. When we talk about a man of faith or a person of faith or a woman of faith, we, we, do, we use that phrase all the time. Well, I think he's a, he's a person of faith, or I think he's a man of faith. I think this guy's a, a man of faith. We, we kind of get the idea that he has some sort of religious attitude, sort of, sort of, kind of. But here it's much, much different. This is more than just a religious attitude. This is a man who stakes his life on everything, on the promises of God. Even when he doesn't see the end. But the reason he does is because he sees this. For he was looking ahead to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder was God. Abraham was able to see beyond his descendants, to see beyond the land, and he was looking to the future. The land was a signpost pointing to that. Isaac was a signpost pointing to that. The city of Jerusalem is a signpost signpost pointing to that, to the future. He is talking about 
what Revelations calls the heavenly city of Jerusalem. Hebrews doesn't really talk much about and go into a lot of detail about the ultimate future. He doesn't detail the resurrection like Paul does in 1 Corinthians. He doesn't detail the heavenly city like Revelation does. He just, he disguised, his, his emphasis is on the inheritance, that they are going to receive this, that people of faith will receive this as an inheritance. And what is our inheritance? Our inheritance is not going to heaven when we die. Our inheritance is the renewed heaven and the renewed earth. That's what people of faith inherit. And this is what Abraham was looking for, not just, not just land for his, his children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren. He was looking to share it with them as well. He was looking to participate eventually in the promise of the city, of the heavenly city of Jerusalem, the renewed heaven and new earth. So we've seen these examples so far. We've seen Enoch and Abel, which the focus there was God's accepting of them. We've seen Noah and Abraham, which, is, which the emphasis is on the heir. He calls Noah the heir and Abraham an heir to receive this inheritance. But now we come to Sarah. And Sarah's life symbolizes the fulfillment. We don't see the end, but we see the beginning of the end. We see the fulfillment with the son. And the next verse is really hard to translate. Uh, sometimes living mean, trust means living without answers. And Sarah learned to live without answers. I believe verse 11 is all about Sarah. I think she's the main actor here. Uh, you may have a translation that, that flips back and forth from Sarah to Abraham, like Sarah is just this little parenthesis, but it seems to break open the, the verse to me, the sentence for me. I think Sarah is the main actor here. It was by faith that Sarah herself, who was barren, received power to conceive a child even then, long past the right age, since she was considered by God, since she considered that God, who had promised, was trustworthy. Is God trustworthy? Can we believe him? Sarah says, yes, that God is trustworthy, that he will produce descendants like the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach, that this creator God can bring life where there was none. This creator God is able to bring life where life did not exist. Even without the answers, Sarah believed. And therefore it came about from one man, and this one as good as dead, descendants were born, as many as the stars of heaven, and as innumerable as the grains of sand by the seashore. Yes, he is trustworthy. And verses 13 to 16 kind of sums all this up. And to me, some of the most beautiful words in the entire book. I love these last three verses of Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to go ahead and read these. All of these people died, with, died in faith without having received the promises. But they had seen it from a distance, and they greeted them. He recognized, they recognized that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, and if they had been thinking about the land they had left behind, they had plenty of opportunity to return. But, as it was, they were longing for a better country. There's that word again, better. Uh, author of Hebrews loves that word. 
but they were longing for a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, since he has prepared a city for them. We live in a culture that um, doesn't do a really good job of honoring their elders. Um, they, um, <clears throat> you know, other cultures like Japan, some of the tribal cultures, they do a much better job of honoring their elders. Um, but see, that's, that's the big trade-off that we don't get sometimes in this country between youth and, and elderly. I mean, when you're, when you're young, you're beautiful. When you're old, you're smart. That's the trade-off. We get to be smart, okay? But we don't do a really good job of that in this country. Uh, kids need to be cool, especially early teenagers. And the, and the most uncool thing is to think that you're not grown up and therefore you're following your parents around. And so it's kind of embarrassing. And I have to admit, you know, as parents, we do do a lot of things that uh, embarrass our children, you know, like maybe trying to dance or something like that. Uh, but we do embarrass them somewhat. But you know what? That's also the other way around, too. Sometimes our children embarrass us. Uh, they, they make us ashamed. Uh, my mother... Grew up in a, in a poor home. He, my, my grandfather was a cotton farmer, a sharecropper, never owned his own farm, but he farmed cotton and uh, didn't have much, but they had the, the philosophy that you could be poor, but you could be clean. And uh, they, my grandfather was a, a, a pillar in the community. He was a pillar in the Southern Baptist Church, and that was very important to maintain that status. And her, my mother raised us kids that way. We knew very, very early that appearances were very important that the worst thing that could happen for us is to bring shame on the family and do something like that. And we, we understood that. And I, I admire parents who are very brave and very loving, who stand by their kid when they're in the principal's office, you know, and they've done something really stupid, and uh, you're, you're kind of embarrassed, but they stand by them and stand by them and love them. Parents can sometimes be embarrassed by their children. Who would have ever thought that God could be embarrassed? But he can he can be embarrassed. But he says, these people, he was never ashamed to be called their God. These were the lives of the spiritual pilgrims. They had their eyes on the future inheritance that they were going to receive, and that is what God is looking for, that they reigned in trust. Verse, 16 is, uh, verse 15 is kind of a warning. It says that they, they had the opportunity to go back, but they didn't. In other words, Hebrews is telling us, you have the opportunity to go back, but don't do it. You will only find slavery. You will only find misery. Don't go back. Don't return back. And in that last verse, that beautiful language, he was not ashamed to be called their God. He was not ashamed to be seen with them. He was not ashamed to hang out with them. For some reason or other, God had attached himself through covenant to this unusual, kind of weird, nomadic family. And he was not ashamed to be called their God. He was proud of them. That is incredible. His favorite title in the Old Testament is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He liked being with them. He loved, he was proud to be with them. And I'm thinking, you were proud of Jacob? I mean, that's kind of, okay. But when you look at the life of Jacob, yeah, he was the heel grabber. Yeah, he was the deceiver. 
but he was also a man of faith. He's the guy who experienced that overlap of heaven and earth. He worshiped from the very beginning. And at the end of his life, you can tell that his, his worship is much deeper than it was at the beginning of the life. He never let go of the hope. Never. And so God says, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. And I got to thinking about that. I was mulling this over my mind all week. What is it like for God to be proud of me? What does it take for God to be proud of me? And what does that feel like to be proud of me? And I think when God, and I started thinking, what, is it, what was it like when my dad was proud of me, proud of us? And I thought, well, first of all, I experienced forgiveness. All of the crazy, dumb stuff that I said and did that maybe embarrassed him, I, he forgave me. He was proud of me. He forgave me for all that stuff. And if I'm going to wallow around in it and just keep going over and over in my mind, then what I'm doing is I'm conceding the fact that I really don't trust the love of my dad. And if we keep wallowing around back on what we did and what we said and keep, can't let it go, what it, we're saying is I really don't trust the love of God. This, this forgiveness helps to do with our guilt. But it also means when God is proud of me, he accepts me. He accepts me. That he, he takes care of my shame. I just saw a, a, um, a secular psychologist says the whole world needs to be cradled. And I thought, as a man, I'm going, I don't, I don't want to be cradled. That sounds too, too feminine or too sissy or too whatever. But I think he's right. The world needs to be cradled. And being, having God proud of you means that he's cradling you. He's affirming you. He's holding you. He takes care of our shame. Experiencing God being proud of me means that I have courage and strength. It means I have the strength to do what Jesus said to do. It means that, that I have the, the courage to love the way he loved. When, they, when, when they, they asked Jesus about power, Jesus said, we're going to do it differently than the Gentiles. We're going to do it differently. In fact, I'm going to show you how different it's going to be, and he washed their feet. And then he died on the cross. And, if, and then he told the disciples after his resurrection to go and do likewise. Go out and do that. And if you're reading John very carefully, you're going to think, okay, I'm supposed to go and do the kinds of things he did. And when God is proud of me, I have the courage and the strength to do that. And you know what comes out of that courage and strength? Joy. It's amazing how joy comes out of what doing the right thing that Jesus called you to do. There is joy that comes out. Sue's been doing this, this study on joy, trying to, and we've been talking about it. She's been telling me about what she's been learning, and we've had trouble kind of de defining what is this joy. And I came across a definition last night that I shared with her, and it kind of makes sense that, um, that, that this joy comes, with, with, uh, that comes out of doing what is right and what is what is. In, in the line of Jesus. And she says that um, she's talking about a spiritual revival. It's a book I just finished on, on black spirituality, which was a really a very fascinating book. And she talks about this spiritual revival that she experienced. Her name is Barbara Holmes. And she says, and then there was this joy, not necessarily happiness, but a joy, the, the quiet, deep-seated conviction that one's life makes sense. And that's what gave her joy. Coming out of this revival, knowing this is what I'm here for. 
and God is proud of me. If I had to sum up the word of the Christian life in one word, it would be trust. It would be trust that this creator God is also a covenant God who keeps his promises. Real quickly, I just want to go through maybe three things, three ways of radical trust. First of all, it begins with Paul's secret, also Noah's secret and Abraham's secret, and that is, I know the one in whom I put my trust. It begins there, knowing the one in whom I put my trust. You don't trust people you don't know, and the more you get to know Jesus, the more you trust him. The more you get to know the God of creation, the more you trust him. Radical trust is not the same thing as clarity. It's not the same thing as clarity. We want clarity, but what God asks of us is trust. Trust does not dispel confusion. Uh, it doesn't suddenly illumine the darkness. It doesn't vanquish all uncertainty. It just means moving forward, trusting the promises of God. It's not promised that we'll get clarity, that we will understand it all. In fact, I think 1 John is all about people who try to make an end run around trust and try to find clarity instead. It's not about clarity, but it is the life of the Christian pilgrim. It's not about having the answers. It's not about erasing the doubts. It's not about um, uh, looking for visible evidence, not trying to prove the existence of God. It's just the life of the spiritual pilgrim. It's the way we live of trust. And all those things that are broken in us, those things about justice and freedom and truth and love and, 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 um, and grace, all those things that were broken in us, uh, spirituality, those get mended little by little as we trust. It is simply the life, simply the life of the pilgrim. And trust erupts when we least expect it. We think we got to work at it, but it, sometimes it just appears. It's a mystery. It's, uh, I don't know how it happens, but it just kind of seems to erupt when, when we need it, when the burden is the greatest, when hope seems to disappear, uh, when we look at the, we're sitting, standing on the peak and looking at things that look impossible, or somehow or another, trust just kind of comes in the life of the pilgrim, in the life of the Christian. It erupts from steadfast hearts in a place that we can't really explain. It just has. It is a gift of God. But it's a gift because it is the life of the pilgrim. Trust is the one word, I think, that describes the Christian life. Because God is trustworthy. The creator God is a covenant God. The creator God keeps his promises. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promises that you gave us. We look forward to our own inheritance. And we look forward to the day when all these things that are broken will be mended. Father, we thank you that you are proud of us, that you are okay with, with uh, spending time with broken people. I think you realize that broken people remember how to love. And so, Father, we continue to trust you, not because we are deserving, but because you have said we are worthy. And it's in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.